Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode in our series on digital health and cardiology. This is a collaborative effort with Corey Health and supported through an ACC chapter grant. Today's episode is a really important one in our series as we discuss how digital health can reduce but also amplify health disparities with a national expert in the area, Dr. LaPrincess Brewer. But first, let's welcome our digital health series co-chairs, Karin and Nino. Hello. Thanks for the introduction, Dan. It is my pleasure to first introduce Dr. Nina Isakakwe. Nino is currently an electrophysiology fellow at Johns Hopkins Hospital and an expert herself in digital health, especially in human-centered design and mobile health applications. Nino has been recognized with many honors. Amongst them, she is an AHA Technology and Information Scientifically-Focused Research Network Fellow and recently was recognized by the AHA with its Women of Impact Award. It is always a pleasure to have such a star as a partner in developing the series. Welcome, Nino. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Karen, for your kind introduction. And we are lucky to have you as a co-chair of the series as well. So it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. LaPrincess Brewer. Dr. Brewer is an assistant professor of medicine within the Mayo Clinic Division of Cardiovascular Medicine and is the first African-American woman cardiologist on the Mayo Clinic Rochester staff. She is currently the principal investigator of the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities in an HA-funded study, The FAITH Trial, which stands for Fostering African-American Improvement in Total Health and is a community co-designed intervention in partnership with African-American churches. She has also received numerous career development awards and her community health advocacy and research has been featured in national news outlets. She was named the 2019 Changemaker by Minnesota Public Radio News, 2020 History Maker at Home Award by the City of Minneapolis Department of Civil Rights, and 2021 Wenger Award for Excellence in Medical Research by a Woman Heart. Dr. Brewer is a brilliant clinician, researcher, advocate, educator, and mentor, and it gives us great pleasure to have her join the CardioNurse podcast once again. Welcome, Dr. Brewer. Thank you so much for having me. I am really surprised I'm saying, is that me that she's talking about? So thank you so much for that kind and wonderful introduction. Of course, of course. We're so lucky to have you today. Dr. Brewer, as we get started, let's start talking about your interest in digital health and health equity. Dr. Brewer, as we've noted, you've become a preeminent voice for digital health equity and health equity in this country. We'd like to start by asking you, how did you become interested in digital health equity and how did your involvement evolve over your career thus far? Thank you. Thank you so much for that question. So as a health equity researcher, I strategically examine the landscape of drivers of health inequities to develop innovative solutions to address them. So through my community-based research, I was able to see clear disparities in access to technology and also levels of proficiency or literacy to use digital tools among my study participants. 
So this really heightened my interest in exploring how digital health could really advance the field of health equity research, as well as promote cardiovascular health. And I wanted to better understand, you know, factors such as digital health literacy or lack of infrastructure, really to see these as a means to promote cardiovascular health and well-being. And I would also say my interest just in digital health tools stem from my interactions with my study participants as they actually wanted and requested that we transition our prior in-person and face-to-face health promotion programming to a digital format you know, really to give them greater access and also to extend the reach of our program. So this really helped to evolve the focus and interest and formatting, if you will, of my research. Thank you so much, Dr. Brewer, for that. And it is wonderful. You know, I've now known you for a couple of years, and it's amazing to watch the evolution of your research and the way you shape the entire field. And so as we think through health equity and digital health equity specifically, I think it's going to be important that we define for our audience what these concepts mean. So would you be kind enough to define for our audience what digital health equity means to you? And would you also be able to briefly touch upon what are some of the groups that are most vulnerable to inequitable utilization of digital health tools? Certainly. So based on my work and those of colleagues in this space, I would define digital health equity as the equitable opportunity for everyone to access, use, and benefit from digital health to achieve their greatest standard of health and well-being. And digital health equity would help all people, and I'll emphasize all people, prevent disease, self-manage disease, and have healthier lives through engagement in healthy behaviors, such as you know, regular physical activity, getting adequate sleep, proper nutrition, and really using these tools to connect them to valuable and reliable health information and resources. And groups that are really most vulnerable to not reap the benefits of digital health tools or interventions are those that have been the most disadvantaged and those that are the most marginalized in our society. And these include, you know, racial and ethnic minority groups, individuals with low income, you know, those that are socioeconomically disenfranchised, the elderly, those with limited education level, also those with language barriers. The list really goes on and on. And I would also say, you know, those that are digital health illiterate and those who do not have high digital health literacy. Dr. Bower, thanks for setting the definition and kind of the background for our listeners here. I want to touch upon a paper you authored titled Back to the Future, Achieving Health Equity Through Health Informatics and Digital Health. And I think in this paper, you and your colleagues really set the stage for understanding structural digital health inequities by comparing it and describing it with the augmented reality game, Pokemon Go. So this game, as some of our listeners remember, incentivizes users to acquire virtual goods at a rarity of physical locations turned Pokestop. From a public health standpoint, many medical professionals had a lot of excitement that apps like this could promote physical activity. However, racial and ethnic minority groups in low-income urban areas across the U.S. took notice of the lack of Pokestops within the neighborhood. You wrote about this concept in your paper of digital redlining, how it places certain groups at a quote-unquote home court disadvantage. 
Dr. Brewer, can you describe for our audience how digital redlining exists in healthcare and how the design of digital tools can place certain groups at a home court disadvantage? Thank you so much for recognizing our paper. It was highly cited and really was recognized on a national scale and that we presented, you know, some exemplars of digital health equity and how to better design digital tools to meet the needs of communities. And I included the Pokemon Go example because it really clearly illustrates how misinformed innovations can really perpetuate health and healthcare disparities for under-resourced populations. So as you mentioned, you know, having less pokey stops in less resourced or disadvantaged, disenfranchised communities, you know, really caused an uproar in these communities as they recognized it and it played out heavily on Twitter under the hashtag MyPokeyHood. So it really shows that you really need to get to know your user base, where they live, their environments, and to make sure that everyone has equal access. Because, you know, again, the goal of it really, we're excited because it could promote healthy lifestyle, right? Especially in underserved groups. But it really lacked that diversity and inclusivity that we need to gain access to health-promoting interventions in this group. So as far as definitions, definitions really, really matter in this space. I'll define the digital divide first before defining digital redlining because it really gives some better context. So the digital divide is really a term used to describe the widening inequalities between disadvantaged persons who do not have access to digital technologies. So these include you know, computers and smartphones, wearable devices, things of that nature, or the internet, and the more privileged individuals who do. So really that gap between those two groups. And there are actually three levels to the digital divide that are worth noting. So the first level divide is the gap between those who have access to technologies and those who do not. So the haves and the have-nots, right? The second level divide is disparities in technology literacy and also disparities in you know, outcomes. So then the third level divide is related to actual technology use and actually how people use these technologies to advance, you know, their, their health or even just their daily lives. So moving to digital redlining. So this has been identified as a barrier to health innovation in that it's really a discriminatory policy or practice by communication technology providers or even healthcare providers and information technology, right? In maintaining or upgrading infrastructure for service delivery in communities or racial and ethnic minority and social economically disadvantaged groups. So this leads to differences in access really among these groups compared to more affluent groups. So although they are related Digital redlining really differs from the digital divide, really, in that it's more of an action, right? You're actually redlining someone than a state of being, such as like, you know, the digital divide that largely describes, you know, really differential access as a consequence of a number of factors. So this concept of, you know, digital redlining really reared its head during the COVID-19 pandemic with the rapid digitalization of healthcare you know, as under-resourced groups are really left behind in telehealth and the telemedicine revolution. 
And we saw this clear exponential growth in telehealth along research lines as well with the emergence of pragmatic, decentralized clinical trials. As medical institutions were really limiting the face-to-face interaction and really placed an emphasis only on, you know, emerging cases. So although, you know, these digital tools that emerged during the pandemic were potentially useful and could transform healthcare, they also propagated health disparities, particularly for minoritized, you know, racial and ethnic groups. As many really lacked access or digital literacy or fluency to actively engage with many of these tools, you know, for both their preventive and primary care. And we published a narrative review in 2021 in the Journal of Medical and Internet Research titled Recommendations for Health Equity and Virtual Care Arising from the COVID-19 Pandemic. And we highlighted this issue and really showing that, you know, although we had, you know, access, you know, there was a surge in use of telemedicine and telehealth for video visits, you know, many disenfranchised groups were unable to truly engage with those really due to unstable connectivity to video visits. And you know how unstable those can be. And many times that was transitioned to phone visits, which are somewhat less engaging. And this can really leave these populations behind, right? You know, in terms of screening and management and really lead to inequities and in health outcomes. And the Pew Research Center also documented that Black and Hispanic individuals are less likely to have home broadband internet than white individuals, and they're more likely to use mobile broadband. So what if you can't even afford your smartphone? So this really, really can widen that digital divide and also really make that digital redlining more prominent. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Brewer. A lot of what you said there must resonate with our listeners here. As we all have delved into telehealth during the pandemic, we really have seen the impact of differential access and differential equity in digital health. And one of the things that you mentioned, and I want to touch upon a little bit more, is this concept of access. And it's probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of the discussion around digital health equity as you alluded to, you know, access can mean many different things, including broadband internet infrastructure, internet-enabled devices. But even if the infrastructure is available, as you noted in your own research, digital health tools may be inaccessible because digital health interventions are not tailored to specific populations. What are some common barriers to uptake of digital health interventions that you have recognized in your own research and practice? So you hit the nail on the head about the cultural tailoring and cultural responsiveness of interventions. So when they are not meeting the needs or taking into account the social, cultural, or environmental context of individuals, that in itself is a barrier because you're less likely to engage with the intervention or you know the solution, and you may not even know about it, right? So some interventions are developed in isolation and have a particular population in mind, but then the groups that need it most are really left out and really do not know about some of these interventions. So I already mentioned, you know, the Pokemon Go situation, but also patient portals, just bringing it home to our practice. So patient portals, um, African-Americans and Hispanic and other racial ethnic minority groups are less likely to even get referrals to use patient portals. 
and clinicians are less likely to interact with them on patient portals. So some patients actually do have access to patient portals and their clinicians are just less likely to engage. And you can see how that could influence the patient-clinician relationship and also lead to further, you know, health inequities. So that's a clear example of how, you know, technological infrastructure itself can be a barrier and then also how, you know, kind of from our standpoint, the health system standpoint can be a barrier. And Dr. Morris, you were talking about innovation and health equity. Of course, we are coming from the lens of the patients and we want to make interventions available for everyone and all of our patients. How do we deal with the challenges of, you know, keep innovating and, you know, create the new digital tools and new digital interventions while we live in the reality where some patients do not have access to technology and talking about the internet, not just like the devices that we could kind of donate to patients during the study, but more like, you know, broad issues at scale rather than just our study patients. Like how do we keep innovating and at the same time ensure that there is equitable involvement of patients? So I really, really love this question because it brings home the point that The social determinants of health also includes what are called the digital determinants of health. And this was described in detail by Richardson and colleagues. And they adapted the NIMHD health disparities framework. And they came up with this health equity framework that now includes the digital environment as one of the social determinants of health and actually renamed it the digital determinants of health. And in order for us to increase access to all populations and to have more inclusivity, we really have to look at levels of influence of how the digital environment can influence health outcomes. So the different levels of influence are, you know, at the individual level, the interpersonal level, the community level, and the societal level. And I think where your question is getting into is that we have to think broader when we're talking about the digital environment. So what are the technology policies that are limiting access to some groups and providing access to others? What are the social norms and ideologies around use of some of these technologies that we need to better understand so that we can then propagate that to have expanded access to some of these tools. So what about, you know, wearables and smartwatches and things of that nature? And then also policy change, right? You know, making sure that broadband internet is affordable for all patients and communities and making sure that it's high quality internet bandwidth so that it can be compatible with many of these devices. So we sometimes forget about that, that even if you do have access, it might not be as high quality for many personal devices. So I think we need to think broadly in addressing many of these upstream influences on the digital determinants of health in order for us to truly achieve digital health equity. Thank you, Dr. Brewer, and we really appreciate your leadership in this space. So the common theme that has developed across our series from our digital health experts is that early and frequent involvement of the end users in the design of the mobile health interventions is a core aspect, whether it's going to be a specific patient, community, or a clinician involvement in this process. 
You have been a thought leader on community-engaged research, including specifically community-based participatory research, or CBPR. Dr. Brewer, can you describe what CBPR is for our audience and how it can apply to the design of digital health interventions? Absolutely. I love that you were able to say community-based participatory research in one try. I always get tongue-tied on that (laughs) one. So CBPR, you know, really is an approach. I want to emphasize it's an approach and not necessarily a method in that you involve an equitable partnership between community members and academicians or researchers in solving a problem, right? And coming up with an innovation or solution or intervention that truly addresses the needs identified by the community that could potentially improve their health. And what's really unique and beautiful about CBPR is that the community is involved in all aspects of the research process from coming up with the research question, you know, conception of what the intervention will be, actually designing or co-designing, you know, the intervention for co-creation of an intervention that reflects the community's preferences and needs to finding really community-centric, if you will, ways of implementing interventions all the way through dissemination of the study findings. And it really can be used effectively in the design of digital health interventions by having community members work alongside researchers really to design something that, you know, truly reflects their community and that, you know, they will actually use. And it's really innovative and creative. You know, I found with partnering with our community members that they are extremely brilliant and innovative and come up with ideas that we as the researchers that are highly skilled and trained would have never even imagined. So this can totally apply to the design and that you can design interventions that are community informed and not misinformed. So you won't miss the mark, right? Going back again to that Pokemon Go faux pas, let's put it that way. Again, working alongside together with community members through CBPR can truly advance digital health equity. I couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Brewer, as we also did the virtual inclusive digital health intervention design, which was approach to human-centered design. Can't agree how many ideas came from patients that or the clinicians who participate that we didn't even think about. So it's a really powerful approach. Dr. Brewer, can you elaborate on the use of CBPR in your research and specifically with the faith and intervention that you have led? And if you would be able to describe how this application was designed and the lessons you have learned from this process. Yay, I get to talk about faith. I get really excited. So this is one of my hard projects, I like to call it. So as you mentioned in the introduction, you know, I'm the principal investigator of faith and I'll remind the listeners about the acronym and what it stands for. So it's Fostering African-American Improvement in Total Health. And we're celebrating 10 years of serving our communities here in Minnesota and recently had celebratory events, a weekend of events two weeks ago. And I'm really excited to see what the future holds for faith. 
So our research efforts really aim to mitigate racial disparities in cardiovascular health by prioritizing marginalized populations through authentic community engagement. And the FAVE trial was a you know, CBPR initiative which really aimed to bridge the digital divide for African-Americans through co-design and testing of an M-Health intervention, which we created with community members for cardiovascular health promotion. So what we did was we co-designed it using that user-centered approach through an iterative design session series. And we reviewed everything from font size, color, the visuals, navigation, and it was really a different process also for our app developers in that they were not used to kind of doing this co-creation with community members. They're used to their clients just telling them what they want and they deliver on a timeline. We had to let them know you're actually on the community's timeline. So when they're satisfied with the intervention, that's when it's, you know, complete. So through this iterative series, you know, we came up with the different features. Again, some of the features that we did not have in mind, you know, a priori when we said we're going to develop this intervention. And I failed to mention that this idea actually came from the community. You know, so they, as I mentioned at the very beginning, after our initial in-person pilot studies, participants said, you know what, I really, really want to be able to go back to reinforce many of the concepts that you have been teaching us. And I want to share this with my community. And I think coming up with an app would help me achieve this. So when they told me this, I said, okay, well, this sounds great and all, but you're going to help me design it. So that was the birth of really this, you know, kind of user-centered participatory design for our mobile health intervention, which we ultimately call the FAITH app. And we tested it in a randomized clinical trial, which, you know, ended in 2022. And our trial had significant improvements in their overall cardiovascular health scores. And we improved health behaviors that are extremely challenging to change and move the needle on, including diet and physical activity. And we really learned that listening to the needs and preferences of marginalized populations is key. And we've already talked about how innovative they are and how their valuable input, you know, really led to what I call a culturally responsive and effective intervention that really reflected the community's wisdom and values. Dr. Brewer, as we know, social determinants of health do not occur randomly, but tend to cluster in specific populations. So, for example, in certain race and or ethnicities, gender or educational levels. Looking towards the future, what role do you see digital health interventions in addressing social determinants of health and reducing health inequity? I absolutely am optimistic about digital health interventions addressing social determinants of health, particularly negative or adverse social determinants of health that places, you know, really one group at a disadvantage over others. I really see these interventions really leveling the playing field by addressing those factors that really, really give those populations a home court disadvantage, if you will. And I really see a specific digital health tool that's really had a lot of controversy as of late really pushing the needle on the social determinants of health. And this is artificial intelligence. I really see this as a tool that could really be used to address, you know, structural racism and looking for social biases in algorithms 
but it really, really takes developing the algorithms in more diverse cohorts that are reflective of those communities that have the most negative social determinants of health. And I see artificial intelligence as a tool or means for allocation of much needed resources for disadvantaged populations to improve their health outcomes. So we recently, as an ancillary study to our FAVE trial, conducted a kind of proof of concept study using artificial intelligence, electrocardiograms or ECGs, to really use this algorithm to see if our participants had low ejection fractions or low heart pumping function. And this screening really gave access to an under-resourced and marginalized community to this tool that they would not necessarily have had access to within healthcare. So here at Mayo Clinic, all of our patients that receive an ECG, it goes through our AI algorithm to predict whether they have a low ejection fraction. So we took this ECG machine very cheap, right? You can just go out to the community with an ECG, snap an ECG, and it went into our medical record, our electronic medical record, and through this algorithm, and we were able to predict this. So I really see this as, you know, a tool that we could do broadly, because if we detect, you know, heart disease early, this can lead to better management and allocation of resources for certain populations. So again, I totally see digital health interventions as potential tools to address the social determinants of health. So Dr. Brewer, you know, as we're closing our discussion here, this has really been a thought-provoking discussion, and hopefully our audience has really gleaned a lot of information on how digital health inequity manifests and how we can approach it and reduce digital health inequity. On that line, would you be able to share with our audience, many of whom are aspiring digital health innovators, on best practices that you've learned through your own research and involvement in digital health? Of course. So there are several best practices to design of digital health interventions, but I think the overarching theme involves really developing partnerships with community-based organizations, patients, or your prioritized audience really by using inclusive design strategies that involve diverse users, you know, in the design of the technologies. And it really fits their needs. And there's a group from the University of California, Berkeley. I love this paper. They outlined a brilliant digital health social justice guide. And based on their paper, I really encourage our listeners to ask these five questions to promote digital health equity in design or evaluation of digital health research. So one, always ask, who is represented in my research and why? So this is that equitable distribution that we've been talking about, that equitable access. Second question is, how can I design digital tools for those with greater barriers to health technology? So those that are not at the table, those who live in those neighborhoods that, you know, have less infrastructure, you know, those who, you know, may have more negative social determinants of health. How do we design tools to really meet their needs? The next question is around privacy and data return. So what are my responsibilities in protecting and returning data to communities? So within these marginalized communities, there's a lot of mistrust and distrust of digital tools. And we have to keep that in mind when we're designing these tools and also our research questions that use digital health tools. 
The next question is surrounding stereotypes and bias. So how might my research or my intervention or my digital health tool aggravate societal biases, sexism, and racism, right? We don't want to be a headline news about, you know, creating or exacerbating, propagating stereotypes and bias. And lastly, really important surrounding structural racism. So how can my research address societal injustices that prevent good health of all people? So this goes back to the beginning of my digital health equity definition. Always keep digital health equity in mind. And if you keep these five questions at the forefront, you definitely will design a digital health equity focused intervention. You know, Dr. Brewer, as you were mentioning a comment, a quote came to mind from someone you and I both know well, Dr. David Hellman, that, you know, medicine is a public trust. And you outlined that in everything you spoke about today. You know, it truly was a wonderful discussion. We have all kinds of discussions with experts on cardiac but to be on an episode with someone that's truly making a huge impact in the community and helping us guide how to approach digital health inequity across the country has been truly special. And just as a marker of how much of an impact you have led and made, I do want to acknowledge that in Minneapolis, Rochester, and St. Paul, that May 20th was declared Faith Heart Health Day. Again, just a, a, a commemoration to how much of an impact you've made in your community. So, Dr. Brewer, thank you so much for joining us on this episode and supporting CardioNerds broadly. And of course, thank you to the HCC Chapter Grant for support for this series and to Dan and to my co-chair, Nino, for helping lead the series. And we will see you next time, CardioNerds. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Shivani Reddy. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy Haus Eindhoven and a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University School of Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now... It's time to make like an S2 and split.